And so let's look closely at Paul's exhortations here in chapter 16 as we finish up. Now about the collection for God's people. So all of this now he's talking about money. For what I, what I told the Galatian churches to do, verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them on their gift or with your gift to Jerusalem if it seems advisable for me to go also. They will accompany me. So now this is what the problem was as we come to the end. God was calling this church to give money to the church of the believers in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was going through a hard time. There was actually a drought in the land. There was not a lot of food. There was not a lot of money. And what God was doing is he was asking the Gentile churches to collect money for the Jew. And the Jew had looked down on the Gentiles as dogs. And in fact, they had a lot of problems with Gentiles coming to the Lord and being included in the kingdom of God. But God doesn't really, that doesn't matter to the Lord because the Lord just wants to minister to his children. And what he was doing was he was getting Paul to have churches gather money together to help the believers in Jerusalem. And what's interesting, we just finished up the book of Jewel on Wednesday night. And in chapter 3, it talks about when Jesus comes down and when he um, establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem and rules for the millennial reign, there's going to be a steady flow of water that comes out from the Mount of Olives to replenish the land of Israel so they'll never have a drought again. This land is always struggling with their need for water. Well, here back then, they were in a severe drought and it was affecting them severely. So what Paul says is, listen, gather some money together so that they may be blessed. And we know from creation, actually from the time of Cain and Abel, that they gave to the Lord as thanksgiving. And it says, in the course of time, Cain brought some, uh, brought some of the fruits of soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. And so we know that they would bring to the Lord to give. And so what Paul was doing was teaching them the principle of giving to the Lord. And so his intent, obviously, was giving in a way that pleases the Lord. And he, he was alluding to this, obviously, this giving practice because this church was in need. And so a couple of things he emphasizes here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Notice that he emphasizes consistent giving. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set a sum of money in keeping with what? His income. And so the Lord kind of sets a precedent about giving. And he said, in the beginning of every week when you go into church, give. But each one should give according to what their income is. And so really he's given this directive of weekly giving. And so apparently, like I said, they were going through a rough go of it. In, in Acts 11.28 uh, about Israel or Jerusalem, one of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. And so money was obviously collected to help those who were in need. And obviously Paul said to set aside as each one is able to do it. And then he said, I will appoint certain men to give that money to them. And so he's emphasizing good stewardship. 
And he said, when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul was being very careful with the money that was to be taken to Jerusalem. And that's all I'm going to say about giving. We're going to move on. (laughs) And this is what he says then as we move on. And he said, let's finish with emphasizing. And what I'd like to do now before we get into the rest of it is actually read down through the chapter. And what I want to do is I want to emphasize two verses, verses 13 and 14. But let's just kind of read down through as we go through this, starting in verse 5. And after I go to Macedonia, I'll come to you. For I'll be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you a while or even spend a winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. And I, don't want to, I, and I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. And we know that Pentecost came 50 days after Passover, which would have been in June, because a great door of effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may be returned to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. Now this is what I find interesting. They were arguing among themselves who was the greatest, and one of those they were arguing was Apollos. Now Apollos, if you look in the book of Acts, was a great speaker. He was one of those. He was a very intelligent man, no doubt. He was tall. He was probably a good-looking guy. He was one of those who carried himself really well. And when he went into the church, they were all like, man, this guy is super awesome and he's great. But what I find interesting is that Paul is not intimidated whatsoever about what they were saying about that man. In fact, he says this, now about my, our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he'll go when he has the opportunity. And so he's saying, hey, listen, I'm going to send Paul to you because he's really a good speaker. He really knows the scriptures, and I just want him to bless you. And so at that time, I think that they probably dealt with their, you know, arguing who was the greatest. And then he goes on in verse 13, and this is what I want want to emphasize as we go down through. And so I just wanted to kind of read that because we're going verse by verse. And this is what's important. If you want to memorize a verse, memorize these two verses. Easy enough. Those of you who say, I can't memorize, I don't buy it. And I know you can't remember squat. You probably can't remember what you did this morning. But you can at least make an effort to memorize these two verses. Listen to this. Because we need them. So here he goes in verse 13. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men and women of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. I'll just read it again. It's powerful, don't you think? If we memorize these verses and just run them through our mind, because we all get scared at times, we all get to wondering what's going to happen at times. There are things that come our way that we don't quite know what to do with. And this is what the Lord wants to bring to mind when we're in the midst of all that. And I'll read it again. He said, be on your guard. 
Stand firm in the faith. Be men and women of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Wow. And if you memorize that, just run it through your mind and run it through your mind and run it through your mind. What you're doing is you're putting your eyes on Christ to get you through whatever situation you might be in. Because there are days that we need to be strong. There are days that we need to stand firm in the faith. There are days where we need to be men and women of courage. And there are days where we need to do everything in love. And that's what God is calling us. So don't you see, to me, that kind of summarizes everything. You've got this love chapter, do everything in love. But then Paul is saying that if you understand this, it will get you through until we're reunited with our Christ. And so I just want to kind of look at each one of those as we, as we draw down. In a nutshell, Paul sums up the Christian walk with these four pithy phrases insights into how to keep our eyes on him who is able to keep us strong in him. And they're really directives that require a daily putting on, don't you think? And so the principles of being on guard and standing firm in courage and love are standards of a God-honoring life. So let's look at this first one. We're exhorted to be on guard. And that's where we go to Ephesians 6 and put on the, on the, on the armor of God, right? Well, what does it mean to be on guard? I'll tell you what it means to be on guard. That means that we've got to be really careful because the evil one is going to do whatever he can to get you to fall. His purpose is to defeat you. His purpose is to get you to nod toward what he might be enticing you with. His purpose is to get you feeling guilty, to get you feeling like you're not worthy, to get you feeling like you've blown it once again. And Paul says, listen, you've got to be on guard. The word means to watch, to be awake, to be vigilant, to, to figuratively be alive. In other words, he's saying don't zone out when it comes to living a Christian walk. You've got to be on your guard, whatever that might be. He says in Proverbs 4.23, and it's interesting who wrote this, by the way. Who wrote Proverbs? Right? Solomon, right? right? How well do you think he was on guard? And this is what he says here. Above all else, guard your heart for it's a wellspring of life. And so this is, this is something that God wants us to understand. Be on guard. And if you're having trouble being on guard, ask someone to help you be on guard. Have someone come alongside, an advocate, someone that's going to hold you accountable or whatever it is for us to be on guard. And then the second one is to stand firm in the faith. And, this, and it's standing firm in the faith keeps us moored in him. The encouragement we get from this is that we're told to stand firm, yet it is God who does it for us. 100% God, yet it's 100% us. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And so he wants us to stand firm in the faith. He wants us to be on guard, but then he wants us to take stand 
and stand firm. He doesn't want us to have weak legs. He doesn't want us to, to fall to the, the power of the world and what the world is throwing out at us. He wants us to stand strong in him. So he says, stand firm in the faith. And then third, we're exhorted to be men and women of courage. And that's another one, being courageous in a life where oftentimes it's hard to do. And so what it, the principle of courage keeps us from defeat and discouragement. And this too is provided by God, yet we must be careful that we don't shrink back and falter. And I love this verse in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. And so he's telling us to be men and women of courage. He wants us to be courageous. He wants us to stand firm in the faith. He wants us to guard our hearts. And part of standing firm is to understand that these things are all about trusting God in these matters. And then we're extorted, exhorted to be strong. Being strong helps us to persevere, and this hinges on our understanding of, of where we get our strength from. And he wants us to be strong. They kind of all, you know, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be men and women of courage, but then I want you to be strong too. And I'm just encouraging you to be these things. You know, as brothers and sisters that I love very much, my church family. Really. And I want us all to be strong in the Lord. I want us all to guard ourselves. I want us to stand firm in faith. I want us to be courageous. I want us to be a church like that. And I want us to come alongside one another and exhort one another along these lines because we've got to help one another get through this life. And, you know, it's like when we, when we live our doors as this special time that we have together, it's precious. When we walk out the door, we're walking out into Satan's world. And it's a nasty world. And here we are, but we're guarded and protected by Jesus Christ himself. And so we walk out, but here at least we can gather together and feel safe here. And we can gather together and know that we'll be treated well and that we'll be respected and that we can exhort one another along these lines as we go out into this world. And then the last, and I love it, we're exhorted to do everything in love. And is that asking too much when you think about it? And of course, what kind of love is he talking about? Agape love, a love that serves one another. And I love it, 1 Corinthians 14.1, follow the way of love. And this is something that God continually emphasizes to be among his children. And principle in itself makes for, I believe, a joyful and encouraging existence, not only for us, but also for others. And that is what it means to keep our eyes on Christ. And I'll read those verses once again, and then I'll close out with reading the rest of the chapter. It says, be on guard. Stand firm in the faith, be men and women of courage, be strong, do everything in love. And now we're going to finish out reading the chapter. 
And you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Don't you love it? They get saved, and all they want to do is serve the saints. And I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. In other words, let them serve and submit to what they're doing. I was glad when Stephanus and, and Fortunatus or whatever, Fortunatus, and I hate these words sometimes, and, and Achaicus arrived. You know, one of the things, and I don't know what it is, maybe it was the way I was raised with, uh, I'm not going to make excuses. I just have problems with some of this stuff. Because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. And you just get from this that there were people just wanting to serve the Lord and do whatever they could to serve Christ. And then he gives final greetings here in verse 19. The church and province of Asia send you greetings. Achilles and Priscillus greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. And all the brothers here send you greetings and greet one another with a holy kiss. And I am so glad that the times have changed (laughs) because there ain't nobody going to come up and give me a holy kiss. Fist bump, yeah. (laughs) Now, can you... There are some parts of Scripture we're not to take literally. (laughs) And I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Verse 20, if anyone does not... And I love this, too, about him, because he is just so to the point. Oh, we live in such a PC, don't say this. And he is just to the point. This is what he says. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse on him. Anathema in the original language. Anathema, Maranatha. Come, O Lord. Originally, anathema to those who don't love the Lord, but we who do Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Doesn't it conjure up this excitement, this passion for the Christian walk, this desire to live for him well, this desire to be be on our guard and stand firm in the faith and to be courageous, you know, do everything in love, to be strong? Maranatha, he says. You can just see it. You can just, his, I can just imagine the pen went deeply into this scroll as he was writing And then he says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. And that concludes the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'll say this as we close in song. I'll say the same thing. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us be a church of love.